As I mentioned, we have been talking about authentic discipleship. That's, that's, that's 2 Corinthians. What does real discipleship look like? 2 Corinthians is, is an odd book in the New Testament in that we read it, we know it's there, we know it comes after 1 Corinthians and it's a follow-on. It's, it's considering the need, it's consider, continuing the discussion. And yet, uh, parts of 2 Corinthians seem kind of fuzzy to us. We, we get what's there, but we don't really get why and how it fits together. And I think part of that is because what's there is very contrary to us. It's not normal. Now, what Paul is talking about in, in, in this, this core passage that we're in now from chapters 10 to 13, he's, he's, things are pretty good with the church of Corinth and him. The relationship, as we discovered in the early chapters up into chapter 7 and then, and then 8 and 9, that the relationship had been restored. There had been some tension there. There had been some distance. And he still refers to some of that. But by and large, the church is with him again. And they're able to share in ministry together. In fact, they even are going to be taking an offering. Well, not for Paul, but they're going to be taking an offering. They're sharing in this ministry together for the poor Christians who live in Jerusalem and in the surrounding area who are under much persecution and have great needs. And Corinth, again, is looking beyond themselves, and they're going to participate in that joint offering of the non-Jewish churches for the sake of those Jewish Christians in Israel. It's a wonderful moment. Things are going pretty good, right? Paul, aren't you satisfied? Aren't you happy? Can't we just leave well enough alone? We've, we've, on the surface, things look okay now. Let's, let's leave it there. He doesn't. Don't you hate it when people still are going to poke a little more? It's kind of like what Paul's doing now in your kitchen. You know, you got the counters cleared. You know, you got the dishes out of the sink. I'm not sure where you put them, but they're not in the sink anymore, right? And it, and it, and it looks pretty good. Oh, why do you have to open that cupboard? You know the corner blind, the one where it has the cupboard, you open the door, but then you've got to reach way back and around, and in there, that's where you put all the broken Tupperware lids. You know, the stuff that you don't use, you really can't even reach, but you couldn't throw it away because who knows, someday you're going to turn that in and get brand new Tupperware, right? The ladies who sell Tupperware love you for that. They really do. But it's supposed to be guaranteed, so keep it, turn it in, okay. But that back cupboard space where there's still some little bit of junk there, but by and large the kitchen looks great. But what Paul's doing now is he's opening that cupboard space. He's going to probe a little further because what stays hidden in the dark, what stays hidden away there in the dark without light shown on it, has a secret place to grow. And it will continue to grow. It will affect, it will impact the church. Paul's talking here about what leadership in the church looks like and, and who am I going to follow that I might follow Christ. And one of the problems that's come up is there have been others who have competed for the Corinthians' attention, not so much that they would lead them toward Christ, but they would lead them after themselves. You come follow us because we need folks to follow us. We're going to really like that. It's going to be cool. And, and he challenges our notion about what it is to be an outstanding servant of Christ. 
Our notions of that, I, I, I won't uh, kind of pull the group and, and, and unpack some of those, but typically our notions of an outstanding servant of Christ in one frame or another have to do with some external outward success by and large. When we think of servant of Christ and an outstanding servant of Christ and probably that outstanding, that one who would stand out, one that we would take notice of and we'd want to follow too, is, is that recognition of others. And there's a visible outward um, just um, um, buzz to it. Paul challenges those notions. What, what, what normally is successful in the church is the same kind of thing that's successful in the culture. And that couldn't be more true in Corinth. And so what Paul's going to do here, and we're going to take time this morning, we're actually going to read the entire, entirety of chapter 11. We're going to read a couple of verses into chapter, 10, chapter 12. But we, I want to explain kind of why does he include this? What's he doing? We'll read the passage, and then we'll just kind of try to just be sure we grab that main point. We'll do that twice, first, first half, second half, okay? So that's, what, that's how we're going to spend our time this morning that Paul is concerned for them that, that they would have this, this cruciform life. They would have this cross-shaped life, a life that represents Jesus well because it shows his sacrifice to others. It gives itself for others, a cruciform life. One gives themselves for others that others might also know Jesus. So first of all, First of all, he's going to say that discipleship is about devotion, that we readjust our focus, and, and I want to give you an outline for that. Go ahead and turn your Bible. Turn your Bible to page, uh, well, to page 2 Corinthians 11. I don't know what page that is in your Bible, but if you're using the church Bible in front of you, if that's a convenient one for you, then you'll find us on page 969. But I want us to be able to read along and follow along. But again, so we're going to read first to like verse uh, 20 or 21, 21 I think. And, and I want to give you a brief outline for that. So let's put that up on the screen. A brief outline is that the first couple of verses, he's, he's saying he's concerned about their faithfulness. He's saying overarching, guard your devotion to Jesus. Guard your faithfulness to Jesus. There's subtle deceptions that enter in. They're just a little off. I, I heard a missions connection the other day, a guy talking about mission drift. And he was talking about you can be just a few degrees off. If you're not going very far, that's not a big issue. But if you're traveling a long ways, you're a few degrees off. You can be trying to fly to Florida and you'll end up in Mexico. You'll be way off your destination. That there's some subtleties that easily creep in, deceptions that creep in. From false servants. They have misrepresented themselves. They're not people these Christians should be following who are using the church to advance themselves. They're using the church for their own benefit rather than seeking to benefit the church. Rather than giving themselves for the benefit of the church, they are using the church to meet their own needs. Okay, with that as an overarching of these first two, and we'll just keep those up on the screen while we read these first 21 verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, 
so your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one that we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with that readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia. The poor in Macedonia supplied my needs. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows that I do. But what I will do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim in their boasted ministry that they work in the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And it's no wonder. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. I repeat, let no one make me think me foolish. But even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as if I were a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. I'll join in. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. If you bear it, if someone makes slaves of you or devours you, takes advantage of you or puts on airs, strikes you in the face, to my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. See, Paul's being a little sarcastic there as he's describing things that have gone on. And in that, that concluding part, that's where there are, there are those who have been leading for their own benefit. They have been gathering follows after themselves to meet their needs. To not only provide for them, paid teachers, but also to, to applaud them and to affirm them and to be a following for them, that they feel then better about themselves because look at the crowd who's following us. Using the church for themselves rather than giving the, to the, themselves to the church for the church's benefit. Now, he, first of all, he says that there's a God-inspired jealousy He's, Paul is here like a father who has an arranged marriage. Now, for most of us, that's unusual. But then again, we fathers who have seen our, our, our daughters choose their own husbands, we have wished we could have been more in that process, like completely in charge of it. But alas, only in some places does that normally happen in our world. But, but imagine Paul is as a father here. And the church is, 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 is his daughter. He brought the gospel to them. They came to faith in Christ. They were born into the family of God through Paul. And, and, and now Paul has arranged then, in that being born again as the body of Christ, Paul has, has arranged for them to be engaged to Christ. This relationship that has been begun by Paul with them will be, will be fully completed in God's presence, that's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. It'll be a wonderful feast in heaven. 
And there we will be face to face. And, and so we are waiting for that day. Are we just almost right on the edge of it? It's, it's almost as if it's, it's the wedding day. And the guests are already a, a, a assembling and they're ready to watch this wonderful occasion. And, and, and the bride in this, in, this, in, 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 in this building, the bride would be back over there in the dressing room, also known as Vicky's office. Because nobody can, nobody's seeing her yet, but she's about to be revealed. It's going to be wonderful. And the groom is ready to receive his bride. And yet there's a back door to Vicky's office. There's an exterior door there. And there's somebody knocking. There's somebody actually scratching at the door. And it's the devil. It's the enemy. And he's wanting the bride of Christ, he's inviting, he's luring, he's attempting to draw out this beautiful bride to step out with him. That's just, just, just one more time. Just come on, open the door, just, just come out, you know, just, just, a, just for a little fun, just, just before, you know, you tie the knot and it's a done deal. That's what he's attempting. And Paul is rightly jealous that his his daughter, the bride of Christ, will not be deceived and drawn away by the enemy who only wants to ruin and use her in order to also bring shame and dishonor upon Jesus himself. That's what he's up to. And he would use us in doing it. And Paul says, it's right to be jealous. It's right that God is jealous over you. It's right that he is concerned that this church does not shift their devotion. They do not lose their devotion. That we are made with a monogamous heart. Hum humanity is made with a monogamous heart. We are made to be devoted to one other. Now, that one other that we devoted ourselves to, and it doesn't always work, and things go, and, and, but when we play with that, when we toy around with that, and when we lay that monogamous heart aside and say, I will just uh, devote myself and give myself to and be with whoever I want, as often as I want, as much as I want, we, we diminish our ability, we weaken our ability to have true re relational intimacy with one. And if that's been the case, you, you know, you've experienced, you've had to work in God's redeeming grace, you've had to work at regaining that again. And so it is spiritually. That we are made with a monogamous heart to have many lovers damages us in our ability to have true relational intimacy in the same way trusting many gods. Having many spiritual devotions hinders our true spiritual intimacy with our one God and Savior. So Paul is right to be jealous over them. Because the enemy would deceive, and he does it so subtly. He doesn't say, okay, Jesus, yeah, but how about this? Or how about something there completely different? He comes alongside, and he's got another Jesus, a new version of Jesus, a revised concept of Jesus. There, there are folks just down the road from us that have a different Jesus. They've knocked on my door, and they, and, and they opened it up, and I saw they were there, and I said, well, you know, I'm a born-again believer in Jesus Christ as my Savior. They said, oh, no, 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 that's okay. We believe in Jesus too. I said, you do? Oh, yes, we believe in Jesus too. I said, well, which Jesus do you believe in? So what do you mean? Which Jesus do we believe? There's only one Jesus. Oh, no. No, there are all kinds of Jesuses around the countryside, in fact. There are many. There's Jesuses here and there all over. 
There's all kinds of Jesuses running around. Which Jesus do you believe in? Tell me about who is he really. Do you believe in the Jesus who in the beginning was the Word? And the Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word was God. Eyeball to eyeball equality with God. Do you believe that Jesus is God come in human flesh? Equal with the Father. No, no, no. We believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Something less than God himself. Do you believe in Jesus who was the creator that through whom Jesus was created all things and there was not anything that apart from him was not anything made that was made, John 1, 3. Oh, no, 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 no. We believe that Jesus was created and then Jesus created other things. That doesn't make sense if God, if through him, were created all things. And there was not, apart from him, there was not anything made that was made, which means Jesus himself wasn't made. We, there are different Jesuses doctrinally, theologically floating around out there. Also for us within the evangelical church, there's various versions of Jesus floating around out there. Our own caricatures of Jesus, if I may. I was just at... At the Missions Connections on Friday, an all-day seminar through, through Friday, and then, and then we stayed for the evening session. And in the midst of the evening session, one of the MCs happened to say something. I understand what he meant by this, but at the same time, it caught me because it expresses a tone out there among our evangelicalism. And it was something like this. He said, this has been so good. We have just been able to be here together and we have just been able to, to, to let Jesus love us. That, that's, that's, that's the way Jesus is. That Jesus wants to love on us. He's not into this holding people accountable. In my ear, I said, wait a minute. I understand what he meant. He was trying to emphasize grace rather than a, a critical judgment of one another. I, I get that. And yet at the same time, I remember Peter's encounter with Jesus that somehow went a little different. When, when Jesus said the words to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, there was some accountability there. That Jesus was not willing for Peter to redefine him however made sense to Peter in ways that would actually leave out the cross. We've got to be careful that we understand for ourselves, we fill ourselves with a, 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 a right knowing of Jesus if we want to follow him. There's another Jesus, there's another gospel. It might be a gospel of works along with faith. That, in fact, the, the, um, the folks around us who, who pretend to be Christians but, are, but would be pseudo-Christian cults, those groups will always be wrong about two things. Who Jesus is, that he's something less than God, incarnate. And they will always be wrong about what Jesus has done for us. He has done something less than accomplished our eternal redemption, which we receive only by believing, trusting, receiving it by faith. That we trust Jesus for what he has done for us, rather than Jesus did that, so if we do this, then together we're going to be okay. It's not a, a, a faith plus anything, because then it would be no longer faith. We would be contributing. We would have something to boast in. That's the way Paul describes it. But every non-Christian cult will be wrong about those two things. Who is Jesus and what has, he has done? what has he done? But we feed our faith well to be equally clear on those two things. He has done it all for me. 
I couldn't contribute anything to my salvation. And now he would be pleased to use me, the life of Christ in me. That, that he is the God of heaven come down in humanity, humbled himself, and he invites me to, to be his disciple, to deny myself, to take up my cross, to, to follow him in that path. There was another spirit. The spirit is not a feeling or force, a, a, a means of excitement and experience. That was an issue at Corinth because you have chapters 12, 13, and 14 of the first letter just because of that. There's another spirit, another Jesus, another gospel. Pseudo-servants who made it about them instead of Jesus. Who, who received from the church and they criticized Paul because Paul wasn't supported by the church. And most of you are not as well. <clears throat> There's a responsibility on our staff here at the church, particularly our pastors, because we are supported by the church for ministry to and from the church. Most of you are not. Now, now I've told you before, and I can say this and, and know that I mean it, not just because I'm trying to be sincere, but because it has been my background, that I love the privilege of ministry and of teaching and proclaiming God's word. I would do this if you didn't pay me. I shouldn't tell you that because you're Baptists. The next budget could look different. I understand that, but I'll say it anyway because that's also the basis on which most of you serve the Lord. And I know that's true because for many years that was my experience. My full-time job, my vocation was something else, and yet I pastored and preached because I had to. That's what God had given me to do in his church. I'm able to focus on it in ways now that I was not able to before, and that is a gift to me, and I hope it's a gift to the body of Christ. But, but most of you serve, and you are not compensated financially for it. And you can say, I do this not because I'm... You know, there's a liability that I have. Out in the public arena, there are times when I've been in a public arena somewhere, and I have, in my role, spoken for Christ in that setting. And I was invited to do so. And yet as I step down and return to my seat, I hear somebody whispering to, to another loudly enough because they probably want me to hear, he's just paid to say that. Okay, well, if I didn't say those things, if I said any old random thing I wanted to say, yes, the church would probably stop paying me. So in a sense, they're right, but they can't say that about you. You have a privilege and an opportunity and an authentic opening that I do not have. When you give yourself away for the gospel, when you speak up for the gospel, when you take the, op the chance that they're going to think I'm a fool like Paul for the sake of the gospel, when you do that, it's not because you're paid to do that. There is a privilege, brothers and sisters, of giving yourself away and trusting that God himself is going to be the one to make it right. What am I going to do? with my discretionary time, with my own spending, in my own prayers? Is it about me or is it about Jesus? Have we made the Spirit God's dispenser of good things and happiness for me and in my life? What am I going to do? I, I, was, I, was, I was reminded just this last week about devotional time. We spoke a couple, couple weeks ago, several weeks ago, the turn of the year, we talked about read your Bibles. Keep reading. Read it through as well as read it slow. And somebody told me, he's a, he's a professor at a, at a seminary in the South, and he met with some of us pastors just this last week, and he said, he said um, we need to not only pastors, we need to not only know the truth, we need to be lovers of the truth. And the question was rightly asked by a pastor that wanted to be sure he understood this rightly. He said, well, 
How do we do that? How do we cultivate more being lovers of the truth? And this gentleman, Bruce Ware, he, he, he said, the one answer that rushes into the front of my mind is to meditate on God's truth. If you want to love God's truth, meditate on it. He said, I changed my Bible reading a couple years ago. I, I now don't read the Bible through in a year. He said, I read the Bible through in two years. Four days a week, I read about three chapters. The alternate days, the other three days a week, I read one chapter. And it's the same chapter I read over and over again on those days for about a month. I meditate on that chapter. I soak in that chapter. It works its way not only into my head, but into my heart. That was a great idea. Keep reading through, get the big picture, and yet soak in God's truth. That, it, that our hearts would fall in love with it. That it would grab hold of us. He says that discipleship is about devotion. Discipleship is about devotion. First, before you consider whatever would I do, readjust your focus. Whom will I focus on? Discipleship is first about devotion to Christ. The true and living Christ, not our caricature of him. What he has really done for us, not our limited understanding of it. Discipleship is first about devotion to Christ. In our own devotions, we would refocus, we would tighten that focus on who is Jesus. What has he done for us? And that will turn the attention away from what will what I do or how will what I do benefit me. It will turn us more toward giving ourselves away for the sake of others. Secondly, in the second half of, of the passage I want us to look at, a true servant of Christ gives himself away in sacrificial service for others' gain and boasts in our own weakness rather than in our strength. We might tend to say, I am really good at this or that or that or that. And, well, I'm not, I won't do that because I'm not very good at that. But a true servant actually will boast in their weakness. It's not about what I can do. It's about what God would be pleased to do through me. Look at this. True servant, sacrificial servant. True servant is boasting in weakness rather than strength. Um, from, from verse 22 of chapter 11. <clears throat> Whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. First of all, he gets a little identity that they've said, we're qualified because we're this or that or that. Our... our are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? Well, so am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? Are they descendants in the right line? Well, so am I. Are they servants of Christ? I a better one. Now, there is a bold boast. How is it? How do you define a better servant of Christ? Is I sound like a fool, like a madman. I sound like I'm insane. With far greater labors far more in prisons, with countless beatings, often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was drifted at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, even in the church, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from these things, 
here's the daily pressure on me for the anxiety of all the churches. All that's going on in there presses upon me. I care for them. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is caused to stumble and I don't feel it too? I'm indignant for them. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ, he was blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. What? As Paul went down that list, are they, are they servants of Christ? I even better. And you know, there was nothing in there about his podcast. There was nothing in there about his number of Twitter followers. There was nothing in there about the conferences he had spoken at. There was nothing in there about the size of his church. There was nothing in there about, about the books he had published. There was none of that. There was nothing about the schools that he attended and the degrees that had been heaped upon him. None of that is there. None of the things we typically might look for were there. It was all the stuff that we would hope to avoid is what made a better servant of Christ. I'm not sure what to do with that. Because I'm, I know that it's not telling us, it's not telling us to rush out for some kind of suffering and self-martyrdom so that we could be, because that's still about us. But it does tell us, be ready. Be ready to lay down your life for others. Be, be willing to lay down your rights and your prerogatives, even the freedoms that you enjoy for the benefit of somebody else. One example of that that is very practical, and I'm going to step on somebody's toes. Some, I, I have been told, so these are not my words, I think, I think these are Piper's. But like Francis Chan, I, could, I can get away with saying this was either Piper or this person or that person that said this, and then I'm good. I think it was Piper. He said the person who exercises their liberty to drink alcohol is a person who, is, who does not have a good friend who's an alcoholic. Because I could. It says don't get drunk. It doesn't say don't drink this or that. But... Will my casual social drinking invite my brother, who that is a trap laid from hell for him? Would that invite him into something that'll destroy him? And would I care enough about that possibility that I won't indulge myself? Now take that principle, I picked on one particular social thing, but take that principle and apply it in any direction that you would. There are many things that we could do that are allowable to us, but I won't do that for the sake of somebody else. Or there are many things that I could do, though it's of no gain for me. There are many ways that I, things that I could do that would be good for somebody else, and I don't get anything out of it. And yet... That maybe is exactly why, because there's a place where I could do something that would help somebody else and I don't get anything out of it. God's going to have to make that right. God's going to have to repay that. God's going to have to be the one to vindicate because it just costs me here. Just like Jesus told the young ruler, he said, I've done all these things that you've said. What, what else do I lack? He said, and Jesus had pity upon him. He, 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 he longed for the man. He said, just one thing. Sell all that you have. 
Because they had a lot. Sell all that you have and give the money to the poor and you come follow me. Jesus wasn't worried about the stuff. He wasn't trying to meet the needs of the poor that day. He was concerned for the man's heart and what he valued more than inheriting the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus wanted to move that out of the way. That's what's going on here. Now, 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 now Paul does something really unusual here in this description as well. He, he, he describes two things. First of all, in, in that whole litany of suffering, which is hard for us to make sense of, Paul's intentionally, um, he's, 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 he's doing a satire of the funeral inscription of, the, of Caesar Augustus that was, of course, engraved on, his, on the emperor's tomb, but it was also plastered on monuments all over the empire as well as on a temple in Corinth. And it talked about where Caesar came from. It talked about his lineage, who he was. It talked about his background. It talked about the great and wonderful things that he had done, his great victories out of his riches, what he had given for Rome, what he had built for the people of Rome. And, and it went on and extolled all of his virtues and all of his activities and his great victories. And it, this is a true man. This is the goal. This is a leader to follow. This is somebody to be like. And Paul's litany here is exactly opposite of that. It's everything that Caesar was not. The Corinthians didn't know what to do with that. Because they had this Greco-Roman background that the gods were exalted, perfected men. Bigger than us, but a lot like us. More powerful than us, but a lot like us. More successful than us, but a lot like us. And Jesus is different. And Paul says, if we're going to follow him, it's going to look exactly opposite of what we think from the world's view of what following Jesus, what being a real disciple actually looks like. He throws in that thing about the let down over the wall in a basket. Why does he throw that in there? Roman background. They had a, an award that was called the wall crown. The wall crown was awarded to the officer for those soldiers who were the first in taking a city, the first soldiers over the wall, the first ranking officer over the wall, he was given for his unit, he was given the wall crown. They were the first to go up and over the wall. Paul says, well, I looked on my I love me wall and I do not have a wall crown. What I do have, what I do have to offer there is I was also, I, I had a wall experience. I have a wall story. I was actually at a time when the king surrounded and, 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 and I was trapped and I was weak and I was stuck and I was helpless. Well, they put me in a basket. It was a garbage basket, by the way. They, 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 they hid me in the daily rubbish going out over the wall in a basket and they lowered me down like so much trash and that's how God made my escape. Paul said, man, what a story. I got a story to tell. What God did for me, God put me in the garbage basket and he set me free. Paul says, you guys honor the first one up and over the wall. I was the first one down the wall. What Paul would tell us, don't jump to the top. Don't climb over others on your way to the top. Instead, dive to the bottom of the pile. Now there's some football games on this afternoon, I understand. I'll try not to keep you from those. And sometimes now and again, you'll see... A pile. 
Somebody's gone for the ball, and they're piled on top. And some guys come in a little late, but if the whistle hasn't blown yet, they still got a chance. And they jump on the pile, and they're on the top, and they don't get hurt a bit. But you add that 280, 300 pounds down to those underneath the pile, and it hurts a lot. But the bottom of the pile is where the ugliness happens. The bottom of the pile is where the sissy fighting goes on. That's where the poking and scratching and hair pulling and eye poking, all that's going on at the bottom of the pile. But still, players will dive into the bottom of the pile. Why? Because that's where the ball is. That's where the prize is. Everything is about that. And they'll subject themselves. They'll dive to the bottom of the pile. And only later, and everything's unraveled, is it revealed who really has the prize. No, now you're going to watch for that in football this afternoon. We've redeemed that moment. Now you have permission. Isn't it wonderful? Lastly, Paul takes a heavenly vision here. Again, we don't understand a lot of this, although it's amazing what he describes. And we would love to hear more, and so would the Corinthians. That's why Paul doesn't tell them. He said, I must go on boasting, chapter 12, though there is nothing to be gained by it, but I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. All oh, the Corinthians love that, a vision, a revelation, something new, new truth, bigger deal stuff nobody else knows. <laughs> oh boy, here we go. A prophetic utterance. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man. Sod. I know a man in Christ, 14 years ago, was caught up to the third heaven. That's above, that's above the atmosphere. That's above space itself. That's into the very presence of God. Whether in the body or out of the body, well, I'm not really sure. Was it actual out-of-the-body spiritual experience? Was it just a vision from within the body? I'm not sure. God knows. But I know this, that this man was caught up into paradise. In the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf... I will not boast, except in my weakness. Though, if I should wish to boast, I'd not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one might think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You know, the, the, first, the, the initial step to victory is admitting I am weak. I cannot do this. I need Jesus to do this for me. I can't, but God can. Even in the terms of, of addictive patterns, people will tell you the very first step is to admit, I need help. That's what Paul means by glorying in weakness here. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I think I skipped a line there. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness, yielded to him. Therefore, I will boast, boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You see how he just summed up that last half of chapter 11 in that closing statement. That's why they go together. But this has got to be confusing 
to the Corinthian church, even as it's a little confusing to us. Paul has this infirmity. Out of this, this great vision experience, he's given this infirmity, some weakness in, in his flesh. From other passages, we deduce it was most likely eye trouble. It affected his, his eyesight, and also it was kind of a draining thing out of his eye that, that uh, caused it to be a little unpleasant to look at, a little unsightly. Okay, and, and so it was something that people would refer to concerning his appearance. Also, it affected how large letters he had to write with. And uh, the, the Galatians, in fact, it was said, would, would have plucked out their own eyes and given them to him if that would have helped because they loved him for his ministry to them. But ironically in all of this, to the Corinthians, Paul is a visionary who himself can't see well. He's a healer who cannot even heal himself. He's the one who has heavenly insight, but he's hobbled with earthly infirmities. He is a messenger of God who has been hindered by a messenger of Satan. We easily think somebody's troubled by a messenger of Satan. Somebody is continually attacked and, 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 and being hassled. That's because of their own weakness, and they must have some sin that is giving the devil that opportunity. Maybe it's because the devil is so concerned about what it is that they're in the midst of that he will continue to try to go after him. And God will even allow it. But as Martin Luther said, don't fear. Even the devil is God's devil. What did he mean by that? Even the devil is God's devil. God's in charge. God's in charge of it. God, God, God had the fence around it here, and God said, my grace is enough for you, even in the midst of the devil's harassments. So Paul is a messenger of God who's hindered by a messenger of Satan. To the Corinthians, with their Greco-Roman notions of God's as exalted, perfected men, they don't know what to do with that. Paul's example and norms of Discipleship are completely outside their box, their world's box. And that's exactly the point. This will be different. We are in a cultural current that pulls us a certain direction. We will have to intentionally realign our focus upon Jesus so that we might realign our own expectations about serving him. The discipleship is about sacrificial service. It's about giving ourselves away for the sake of others, not being successful for Jesus in ways that reflect well on us. Discipleship is about giving ourselves away in sacrificial service. We need to realign our expectations. We need to deny ourselves. We need to dive to the bottom of the pile. Let me put the two of these together. When we make the gospel more about us than about Jesus. We tend to twist service in ways that meet our needs and reflects well on us rather than meeting others' needs and reflecting well on Jesus. Let me say that again. When we make the gospel more about us than about Christ, then we tend to twist our serving Christ in ways that meet our needs and that reflect well on us rather than meeting others' needs and reflecting well on Christ. So we need to realign our focus, dwelling on him, on Jesus and the gospel, because discipleship is first of all about devotion. And out of that, 
discipleship comes looking unto Jesus, discipleship becomes sacrificial service with new changed expectations. If you're still young in faith, there was a part in here. We're going to have the offering in just a moment, so I want to speak one word about that. It's often said, preachers, he's paid to say that. Churches, they just want your money. Well, it might be. Paul, Paul did not take gifts, money for himself and his support from the Corinthian church. That's because they were a new church. They were a young church. They were still deciding what did they believe. And in that immature faith, Paul didn't want to give any grounds of accusation or misunderstanding. He would give himself away for them rather than accepting things from them for him, his benefit. If you've heard that, you've thought that, you're here this morning, you're not sure about this whole faith in Christ thing. You're not sure about uh, where you are in faith, where you are in terms of of, um, uh, why you would give. Then don't. Don't. That's okay. But if you're convinced, I do believe in Jesus. He is my Savior. He gave himself for me. Then you need to give yourself away. It's not a matter of what you have. It's a matter of myself. When, I, when you can give, when you can give and giving is worship, then give. And give with all your heart. Worship God as fully as you're able. But do it as worship, not as obligation. Now, I'll tell you this as well. You say, well, I know that, I want that, but I don't quite feel it yet this morning. I'll tell you what, step first, and then that feel comes after the fact. That sense of worship comes, and the pleasure of worship comes after the knee is bowed. Let's pray. Father, we, we do this exercise of offering not because there is a church budget, although we tend to think that way. Father, we do this as an exercise in our worship to you. We need to yield. Father, you know my prayer. Lord, hear our prayer together that week after week, What is offered in this offering is the sincere and genuine and and needful prayer requests of a people who desperately need you. Is, Is praise on that communication card, or we have seen something this week, this month that God has done. That is a presentation of I want to give myself away in any way that I can for the glory of Jesus. Lord, make this offering about that. Lord, we give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.